this is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. So with us today is uh, Dr. Rachel Gillum, and we're going to be discussing her new book, Muslims in a Post-9-11 America, a survey of attitudes and beliefs and their implications for U.S. national security policy. And just to give a little bit of lead in for, uh, for Dr. Gillum, she is an international security expert with over a decade of experience working with the U.S. government, multinational corporations, and within academia. She is a visiting scholar at Stanford University, where she is working with a team of European and American scholars to develop innovative immigrant and immigration integration policy analysis tools. Her work appears in the Washington Post, Talking Points Memo, as well as a number of other uh, scholarly publications. Her book with University of Michigan Press, Muslims in a Post-9-11 America, A Survey of Attitudes and Beliefs and Their Implications for U.S. National Security Policy, explores how government counterterrorism policies can alienate the country's most integrated Muslims and become counterproductive to national security. Dr. Gillum is also Senior Director at Rice Hadley Gates, LLC, the strategic consulting firm led by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, former National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley, and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates. At the firm, Dr. Gillum and her team assist CEOs and senior executives at major companies to expand their businesses and meet challenges in key international markets, including India, Russia, China, Europe, Latin America, and the Middle East. So, uh, Dr. Gillum, welcome to Fortress on a Hill. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Would you mind giving us a little bit of background on the book, how how you came to write it, and um, what your thinking was along with it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I started the book actually while I was pursuing my doctorate at Stanford University. And what the book really aims to answer initially is some common perceptions about Muslim Americans in the United States. Um, Leading up to President Donald Trump's election, about 50% of all Americans believe that Muslims were anti-American, not part of the American fabric. 50% believe that Muslims are more prone to violence. And up to a third believe that um, Muslims should be subject to more scrutiny by law enforcement, um, closely watched, and things like this. So the, the book um, takes an aim to try to answer these questions. Are these presumptions true? And if so, what does that mean for our national security policy? Um, so the book takes a look at, look at those, and then it also looks at, you know, what has the effect been of this kind of scrutiny on Muslims? What has is, what is the effect been on the community? One of the things that's interesting to me, um, Dr. Gillum, is the way that we speak, even just the, the, the vernacular and the language in the American political space, you know, it is not uncommon to hear people say things like asking the question, is Islam the problem? Is Islam inherently violent? But, you know, you couldn't imagine inserting any religion in there, 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 thinking that would be okay. If you were to say, is Judaism the problem or is Judaism, I mean, that would immediately be considered anti-Semitic, but it seems that there is a space in the American 
political landscape where you can say those things. We can ask those questions about an entire world religion. That's absolutely absolutely right. And um, I think the important thing is that these sort of presumptions of Islam being different or exceptional, again, has really fueled a lot of policies that um, I'm, I'm worried that are ineffective, are unnecessary, and are d misdirecting um, you know, limited resources for our security. Absolutely, yeah, that's a really great point. I I loved that alienation was one of the main themes of the study. Trying to see how our counterterrorism counter policies are alienating Muslims, and I'm wondering from you, how did alienation become a focus of the study and of your book? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Again, um, you know, there's this presumption that Muslims in the United States are somehow um, not integrating into the American fabric, that they are, as you say, somehow alienated from the broader society. Again, so this is a key question I take a close look at. Um, I look at how much uh, Muslims are interacting with the average American. Um, agree they have friends outside of their communities, um, how they're doing economically and financially. Again, because there's this assumption that is not necessarily proved statistically that, you know, alienated communities are more prone to violence. Um, again, um, again, take a close look at that in the book and find that actually Muslims are very much integrated in the United States, Economic, socio economically, socially interacting with Americans. Muslims are doing very well. Um, they also don't stand out in other ways such as um, you know, going to only Islamic schools. The mass majority of Muslims go to mainstream public American schools, are socialized in the same way as all other children in the United States. Um, religiously, um, particularly by second generation, Muslims don't stand out in any particular way as being particularly religious or, you know, fanatical. Again, I look across a variety of measures and find that Muslims are very well integrated by no means you know, is the majority of the community alienated in any way? Um, so I think this is key in sort of addressing, again, some of those common presumptions about Muslims in the United States. Absolutely. And it, it, it's a it, it's a hard direction to pick where, where to look in in terms of where the most criticism ends up coming from. Uh, even something um, from your book, like what you're talking about, that Muslim Americans make up the largest known source of information that has helped to disrupt terror plots. That's, that's it's just not commonly known, but you, you wouldn't hear that on the nightly news. Exactly. And um, it's such a key point, again, because Muslims have been accused of not doing enough, not speaking up enough. Um, but in the course of my research, so I not only conducted a nationwide survey of Muslims, hundreds of Muslims across the country, but I also spoke with hundreds of Muslims across the country. And this has been something that's been really frustrating because these um, community organizers, um, religious leaders have gone to great efforts to speak up, to condemn attacks, you know, to make public appearances, rejecting this type of violence. Um, but it's often just not heard, as you said, not covered in, in the news. And in fact, on, on the flip side, you know, when we talk about domestic terrorist events, um, their studies show that when a perpetrator is perceived to be Muslim, they receive up to eight times more coverage than if a perpetrator is not Muslim. So I think that and this in part is fueling some of those perspectives that, again, um, Muslims are more prone to violence and aren't speaking up enough. But part of that is just a skew in sort of what 
you know, sells in the news, what's presented on TV. Can you compare the, I don't know how much you can speak on this, but the differences between uh, the Muslim American community and uh, Muslim communities in Europe. It, it seems to me that Muslims in the United States tend to actually be better integrated into society than the Europeans. And uh, I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So I, I do focus um, exclusively on the American case, but have looked into the European case. Um, it is generally true that Muslims in the United States are much better integrated than those in Europe. And this is for a variety of reasons. Number one, that the United States obviously has a history of welcoming immigrants, integrating immigrants, um, and a culture that is more accustomed to bringing in immigrants, um, similar to Canada. Um, and um, also in the United States, we have different policies that allow for immigrants to access you know, our systems become citizens more easily. Um, this just helps support that integration, getting jobs and things like this. So it just goes much smoother. For whatever reason, our systems for integrating immigrants work better. But number two also is that the type of Muslims migrating to different countries, you know, people are coming for different reasons. In Europe, for instance, their big inflow of Muslims came right after World War II, mostly labor to help rebuild um, the continent. Um, whereas in the United States, we tend to get a lot of high-skilled immigrants. So a lot of the Muslims coming around the world are engineers and doctors, um, you know, working in high-skilled fields. So we, we definitely, you know, so it's partly a, a, a sourcing issue. And then also, again, the policies that make it easier for individuals to become part of the American fabric. Yeah, that's a real, you know, the reason I ask, I think it's a really important point, because despite the rhetoric that we've seen from, say, the Trump campaign during the uh, 2016 election, despite the rhetoric of, you know, uh, Muslim otherness or uh, Islamic danger, it, it seems that the United States has actually uh, done a pretty fantastic job of integrating Muslim Americans. And uh, compared to Europe, um, I would say we're on the forefront. And yet, as I think your work shows, that has not necessarily uh been the common perception because so many Americans really fear Islam. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, again, um, some of this rhetoric from our highest offices is driving, you know, some of this fear among the population. We see that right around every major election cycle, that hate crimes against Muslims and negative public towards Muslims increase. Um, in part because politicians are sort of using this again to gain um, political points because that's an effective political strategy, but it has very negative, you know, ramifications for for Muslims and other groups that are subject to this, um, you know, type of rhetoric. I saw that the the study showed by and large that American police officers see far right extremism caused by white Americans as a much bigger problem than similar instances with foreign-born or American-born Muslims, although it, we, we would also not hear that on the nightly news. Um, in going through the study, how do, how do you think Muslims can show themselves for the diverse community they are? Because that was, that was one of the things that I'm sure that I thought about before but never really went over until I read your book, was about how diverse they are and how we can't, we, that looking at any of them as simply a, a placeholder for extremism is, is just a dangerous way to think. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. The community is incredibly diverse, um, not only among the immigrant Muslim population to come from 70, 70 different countries, speak a variety of different languages, and also practice various forms of Islam. And in many cases, when, when people come to the United States, this is the first time, you know, they're interacting with Muslims from different parts of the world. Um, and even second and third generation Muslims, again, very diverse. Most people, when they think of Muslim Americans, think of Arabs, but in fact, Arabs make up only maybe 20, at most 30% of the Muslim population in the United States. Um, other large portions include African-Americans, includes Asians, which, you know, part of that is Southeast Asians from Pakistan, India, and so forth, um, but also Europeans. Um, really diverse community, um, diverse views on a variety of issues. Um, and this, again, um, and in fact, we should probably talk about it as not the Muslim American community, but as Muslim American communities, just because, again, spread across the country, each has very different experiences and perspectives and all these issues. Um, so, yeah, that's absolutely a key point. We hear this rhetoric uh, from the far right about the danger of, say, Sharia law becoming the norm in some of these communities, specifically like in Michigan and some of the places where there are large Muslim American populations. What do you see as the danger of that rhetoric? Uh, I mean, obviously it's not true, but it does certainly resonate in the political space. So what are the dangers of unfairly demonizing this community? Yeah, I mean, that the anti-Sharia sort of craze it seemed to be in trend in several states where people were passing this anti-sharia legislation is purely symbolic just because you know based on u.s laws i mean we're not going to have a religious law trump u.s laws and our law does allow for individuals to practice you know um some religious you know um practices as, again as long as it doesn't directly conflict with u.s law for instance there's um, allowances in Judaism um, for Catholics, for um, different religious groups throughout the United States. Anyway, um, as you said, you know, I actually looked at this very question among my survey respondents, compared them to the average American. Muslims are no more likely to suggest that, you know, religious texts should be the basis of U.S. law. They're much more likely to say that, you know, again, U.S. society should determine the laws of the land. So as you say, it's not accurate. Um, but again, it, it, it's demonizing. It, it makes people think that all Muslims are coming here to, again, not become a part of the American fabric, suggesting that Muslims would rather, again, live these separate lives, which is just not true um, as far as what we see in the data and, and, and as we see Muslims, again, integrating very much in American society in all sorts of ways, as far as friends, intermarriage, um, you know, just participating in common American activities, if you will. Um, again, it just paints a misleading picture, I think is what's unfortunate. Absolutely. So I'd like to talk about uh, U.S. military action overseas for a little bit. Um, U.S. military action against Muslims in other countries was seen in the study as a, and as it should be, I think, as a perceived disregard for the safety of Muslims by our government at large and was a major source of anger on the part of some U.S. Muslims. What I'm, what I'm wondering is, how did the perceptions of Muslims, uh, U.S.-based US Muslims, how did their perceptions towards the military and its missions abroad change when it came to second and third generation Muslims here in the U.S.? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's good questions. Yeah, I spoke um, with many Muslims about this issue. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it is a is a touchy subject, you know, sort of this perception of, you know, does the U.S. not value these lives as much as other lives? Um, but especially among later generation Muslims, again, many of whom themselves serve in the military, they share the goal and the desire of the U.S. government, the U.S. military, of keeping Americans safe, um, of, you know, achieving our national security goals. But again, they are, you know, are sensitive to cases where there's unnecessary deaths. You know, we hear the stories about the drone accidents and killing families at weddings and these, you know, terrible stories are talked about. Um, so it's definitely like, a, um, you know, mixed feelings in the sense of, of course, you know, I'm supportive of the United States, but we would hope for policies and strategies that would preserve as many lives of civilians as possible. And I think that's a view that's held not just by Muslim Americans, I think that's a view held by a lot of Americans, where people would rather, again, always prefer to see civilian lives preserved whenever possible in war. It does seem in many cases that American foreign policy abroad is counterproductive. Um, the Muslim American community uh, is not, as you've shown in your study, is not particularly violent, it's not particularly other, uh, from the fabric of the United States, but one can't help but wonder if the United States continues to wage perpetual war in primarily Islamic regions, there's going to be some blowback eventually, you would think, among American Muslims, because U.S. foreign policy is, is really in a state of perpetual war with different Islamic groups, and there's no end in sight. We're coming up on the 17th anniversary of Afghanistan. I mean, at some point, do you think... Um, this could start becoming a problem or uh, becoming perceived as a problem within the Muslim American community? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough question. It's somewhat outside the scope of sort of what my core data speaks to in my book. But just from, you know, looking at this topic generally and talking with folks, you know, there is a connection, as you say, uh, between, you know, what's going on overseas and in some cases, um, activities within the United States. For instance, um, we saw when ISIS was declining, basically we actually saw a spike of attempted attacks by individuals who were motivated to work on behalf of ISIS. In this case, this was an attempt by an Islamist group overseas to, in a, in a weakened state, to try to, you know, use these other means um, in, in asymmetrical to get back in the United States. Um, and, and again, that's sort of a a different question than, you know, Muslims more broadly being upset. Again, mass majority of Muslims completely reject ISIS. They are very frustrated that, you know, this group has even been able to claim Islam as its, you know, motivation and driving force. Um, so it's, you know, again, I, I guess the point being is that, you know, yes, there, there's definitely an, a, a link between what's going on overseas and in some cases, you know, certain attacks we see in the United States. But again, by and large, through the ups and downs of the last decade or so, and even beyond, we don't see a, you know, a mass movement by Muslims to, you know, conduct violence against the United States. It would just be sheer chaos. Um, you know, the number of deaths, again, by violent extremists, Islamists is just very tiny relative to other types of domestic terrorism, much less other types of mass violence, like you know, school shootings and things like this. So, in reality, it's a it's a relatively small threat. Um, sort of going back to your point about perceptions of police officers, 
you know, while it's big in the news on the ground, it's not as severe as a threat as it might seem. What would you say out of the study shocked you the most after having gone through it all? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, there were so many interesting nuances because myself, I'm not a Muslim myself. And so throughout the process, I learned a lot, again, about the diversity of the community, the diversity of leaders. Um, and I think one point that really hit home, um, again, was just how much U.S.-born Muslims, you know, they see themselves, again, as full 100% Americans. And again, these questions about, you know, are you American first or Muslim first? I mean, these are just incredibly frustrating questions to them because, again, it's not posed to another group. And they're just like, of course, I'm American. And, you know, you know, asking which comes first is, again, a presumption that somehow the two things are in conflict, which in their view, they're absolutely not. Um, and again, um, throughout the book, I find that, you know, it's really U.S. born Muslims who you know, they're the most frustrated with some of the policy changes that seem to be targeting wrongfully Muslims, in part, again, because they have, you know, high expectations for good governance, um, equal representation under the law, they understand their rights, and they want to see the U.S. government operate at its best, you know, they want to see it do well. Um, and, and anyway, that was definitely a key theme that, that surfaced in the study. Yeah, they, they really want to be able to believe in the American dream. Just like we all do, of course. Absolutely. So, no, it's, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a lofty goal, but it's, 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 it's horrifying for people when they find out that that's, that's not what they've actually received. How do we change the narrative? Because especially on the political right, the perception versus the reality is way out of whack. I mean, the, the political right really seems to believe that Islam is a problem and that domestic Islamic terrorism is this massive threat. You know, how do we get studies like yours out into the mainstream? I mean, obviously we're having you on the pod partly to like contribute to that, but it can seem frustrating because all the data may speak to one truth. And yet this sort of demonization of Islam continues to be mainstream political opinion on the right. Yeah, and it is incredibly frustrating. Um, and I think, you know, our who we vote into office is really key. Again, we see that political rhetoric by candidates, by politicians really does drive public opinion on this issue. Um, and I hope studies like mine, I hope studies of my colleagues really can start to challenge that. But, you know, it starts with our government leaders. Um, recently, um, President Trump issued the order of a study on domestic terrorism and the DOJ and DHS um, released a study that was basically trying to make the argument that this, you know, the source of all the terrorism in the United States is coming from abroad. But this study has been widely, widely rejected by scores of academics and national security experts by basically this manipulation of the data. When in reality, um, you know, maybe 17% at most you know, of domestic terrorism threats come from overseas. Again, the study completely ignored the threat of right-wing terrorism, which has accounted for over 70% of deaths, you know, just this last year, you know, among all domestic cases. Um, you know, so, you know, we have to continue to watch carefully um, sort of 
how these narratives are being manipulated to support different policy goals. And, um, you know, again, unfortunately, it kind of starts at the top in many cases. My, uh, my last question for today, who are your go-to defense writers? Oh, good question. I mean, to be honest, I like to keep it very diverse as far as my source of online news, um, just because, you know, I think it's important to, um, you know, look at different opinions. Look, everyone has a bias, uh, you know, look at different sources. Um, and so, yeah, I end up reading a variety of different news, but I like to often go to, you know, the the core source. As an academic, I'm I'm very interested in the data. I'm very interested in sort of what happened on the, on the ground, less interested in the analysis. So I don't think I can give you a, a clear list of who my one or two are. Oh, that's okay. It's just it's just good to know your your, yeah. your your news sources are very diverse, just like Danny and Mize are. Yeah, you really do have to. You really do have to diversify because uh, so much of the mainstream media doesn't spend much time talking about foreign policy anymore. I had, I was writing the other day from home, and I must have had CNN on the background for about ten hours straight, and there wasn't a word spoken about foreign policy. There was, you know, if 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 an alien came down to Earth and watched CNN for ten hours, they would think that we're at peace. They would think that there is no war in Afghanistan because no one is reporting on it. But so anyway, my last question is. What's next for you? What's, what is your next project or what are you working on now? Absolutely. So um, since um, finishing this project, I've been working more generally at Stanford with a group of scholars, as you mentioned in the beginning, um, helping develop tools for policymakers to assess how well immigrants are integrating. Um, basically, we don't have a common definition of integration that we use across societies. Um, so we're basically developing a tool that policymakers can hopefully use to um, see how well their policies are doing and allowing immigrants to become part of the fabric of society, um, as we sort of talked about earlier. Um, and so hopefully that will be utilized and helpful to policymakers moving forward. That's great. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us today. Please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, Analyze your news and its sources very closely. Verify everything you read. And remember that no one, no matter how powerful, are above criticism, especially those with the power to send others into harm's way. We'll see you next time.